0: Hello and welcome to episode 29 of The Two View, the cutting edge and informative podcast for emergency medicine and urgent care PAs and nurse practitioners. I'm Mike Sharma. I'm a practicing emergency medicine PA in Dallas, Texas and an adjunct professor of PA studies. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Martha Roberts.
1: Hi, Mike. I'm Martha Roberts and I am a nurse practitioner and assistant professor in Northern California. I was just organizing my desk for another month of journal review, schedule planning, uh, some play dates for my daughter and myself, and also a few shifts, but most importantly, gearing up for our next two boot camps
0: double the boot camps double the excitement we will be talking about those shortly Uh, martha we've had a massive shakeup here in the sharma household my darling oldest child kika has officially started her college freshman year out of state and uh, we miss her dearly Uh, i finally stopped crying every day which is really nice Uh, but we actually ended up with a net increase in mammalian life forms in the house we are once again the proud owners of cats it took a while to figure out what to call them, and eventually we had a compromise between uh, two warring factions in the family. Robert Theodore Sharma and Josephine Shark Sharma are fitting in quite well.
1: You know, I remember when I first started college, it was pretty much the best time of my entire life. I'm definitely mm. jealous. So if she needs a visitor, I will come and see her. <laughs> um, but I'm not a huge fan of cats. Not a cat fan. Oh, okay. Uh, but a word on toxoplasmosis, okay? <laughs> Still a thing, just so you know. Cool fun fact uh, you should clean that poop up really fast, okay? okay. So uh, the toxoplasma parasite does not become infectious until about one to five days after it is shed in a cat's feces. So maybe you should walk around with a little thingy to scoop it up right away. But either way, wash your hands and soap and water, good. Nobody's pregnant, that's great. Um, immunocompromised people stay away. And of course, teaching our kids still um, the importance of infection prevention. One interesting thing, um, since toxo is still a thing, some signs and symptoms of toxoplasmosis still include flu-like symptoms and Mm. oddly enough, eye issues, right? So these floaters, even eye pain. So um, this can get in there, that parasite infect the inner eye and people even um, with healthy immune systems can have this uh, toxo ocular issue. But yeah, this I haven't seen it in a while But the last patient I did see it in was an immunocompromised patient with HIV. So yeah, um, still be on the lookout. And that's my random health scare for the month. Um, Good luck with your cats, though.
0: Yeah, uh, I did not see our conversation veering towards feline feces, but here we are. Okay, good talk on toxo. Well, as you know, to toxo is the reason why pregnant women shouldn't change cat litter boxes, even though a toxo infection would likely not be harmful to the woman. It can be transferred to the baby and cause birth defects and even miscarriages.
1: It's the T and torch, right? So yeah,
0: is it? Yeah, I think it is. Right? Yeah, that's right. Torch without, infections. Without toxo, it would just be orch, and that wouldn't mm. be as good. But Uh, or they'd probably have to rename it to Roach at that point, but anyways, uh, it is what it is. (laughs) Speaking of pediatric topics, at the time of this recording, we are just days away from our very first iteration of Mastering Pediatric Emergencies, our live three-day course all about the shorties in Las Vegas at Historic Caesars Palace, September 12th through 14th. Martha, I'm curious, what are you most looking forward to with this course?
1: You know, I'm super excited. There is a nice blend, a nice mix of people that are going to be there. Emily Rose and Dr. Picata um, have put together a really great, great, great course. I'm very excited. It's been in the in the process really for several years now. Yeah. And I'm I'm really just this is a different CCME crew. Really, I mean, Al Cicchetti has been with us forever uh, it's nice to see him again um, actually one of my dad's former residents I always think that's so funny I, I think of him like a brother and uh, I, I just I'm really excited just to see a different group of educators come and hang out and and uh, you know it's a little shorter so I'm not going to be as tired
0: <laughs> can't lose a much money on the slot machines either so no. that's kind of nice <laughs> 21.5 yeah. CMEs available with our Mastering Pediatric Emergencies course. If you were able to get away and go, never fear. We will have this course for download and ravenous consumption very shortly. That will be at the Center for Medical Education website at www.ccme.org. That is www.ccme.org. Speaking of getting away, you know the deal. Now is already The time to fence off your December schedule for our next original emergency medicine boot camp. It is December 12th through 15th for the main course. We, of course, have two pre-course days for our pharmacology course, our ultrasound course, our procedure course. That's on December 10th through 11th. Plus, I think there's like no less than two new steakhouses and a new Bobby Flay restaurant opening up in Caesars Bows alone. Like just in Caesars, there's three new amazing restaurants opening between now and December. I'm frankly still riding high on us going, that that Gordon Ramsay joint um, on that last day of of boot camp. That was really great food and, and of course, even better company. That was really awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the food in Las Vegas. So even if you can't go to the whole course and you just want to spend some time vacationing, there's some great
0: places to chill. Most definitely. So
1: let's get right into this, Mike, segment one.
0: Let's do it. It's time for our first segment, The Wet Read, where Martha and I get 60 quick seconds about something that caught our eye, and I'm on the clock first. Here's a subject near and dear to my heart my spine. A multi-center randomized controlled trial in Australia started the treatment of acute musculoskeletal neck and back pain with prescriptions for opioids. This is still very common in the U.S. Over 43 prescriptions for opioids were given for every 100 neck and back pain sufferers as recently as 2020, despite all the Pushed to for us to not do this. Uh, one arm of this trial received a placebo; the other, an oxycodone-naloxone combo pill, for up to six weeks. Both groups received advice on NSAID usage and activity modifications. Thank goodness. At the six-week mark, pain scores were slightly lower, but not significantly so, in the placebo group. How about recovery time, days off of work, or quality of life? also not improved by the opioid prescription. Those were probably kind of like secondary um, goals there of the study. At one year out, pain scores were again slightly better in the placebo group, but in the opioid group, uh, well, who could have seen this coming? The opioid group had a greater risk of opioid misuse than the placebo group. Not great.
1: Mm. Well, I have a lot to say. Definitely more than 60 seconds. I... Uh, we've been poorly treating back pain in the ER for years, if you ask me, uh, de- decades, really. We know back pain can be bone-related, it can be muscle-related, it can be nerve-related, infectious-related, all kinds of things that can cause back issues. And if we don't nail down that exact cause, which oftentimes we don't, we sort of say, oh, you know, this sounds or, you know, it doesn't sound like, uh, but, you know, it could be some nefarious stuff. So we rule that out. Um, but, you know, the pain meds and muscle relaxers can be a very difficult balance. And I still find that a single or maybe even two or three pills for acute back pain in the ER of an opioid helps with that pain. Not necessarily because it helps with that pain, but because it literally makes people not care. And I'm going to talk about not caring uh, <laughs> in a minute <laughs> with another drug, but no long-term prescriptions. That's not, That's not. I very rarely say this, but that's not our job for sure. Uh, but yes, maybe something to help ease their anxiety and make the pain disappear for a few hours in that in that sense. I've had success with one milligram, I am Dilaudid, okay? It's not something, yep, I do that occasionally. It really depends on the patient and their tolerance, but not much success with Percocet or Vicodin, really, not not really, Um, and you'll never see me prescribe them, like I said, because they can be very dangerous, Uh, but I don't want the pendulum, we say this a lot, to swing too far. You know, treat acute pain, start with the stepwise approach, And we covered this so many times in our prior episodes, and I will direct our listeners back to Sergey Motov. Dr. Motov, he talked about pain on our pain panel, and he reminded me that the pain ceiling for ibuprofen, right, 400 milligrams, right? And also combining ibuprofen and acetaminophen for back pain and other types of pain, according to the evidence, can be more effective than 5 milligrams of oxycodone.
0: Yeah, we are going to link to, I I still remember that that panel, you know, I think that was like deep in, you know, the early first year of COVID thereabouts, but uh, that was a great panel. He gave a great talk. We'll have that on our website all the links and all the uh, studies we talk about today are going to be on our website that is uh, twoview.fireside.fm the number twoview.fireside.fm and you can see me martha uh, dr motov i believe uh, rick and diane were there i think pescatore ken mill yep. for sure was there so yeah so uh, a great panel that um, i was really proud to be a part of we, we definitely have discussed back pain treatment at live at the boot camp as well I think... Maybe not the same page you and I are on for treatment of back pain, but at least in the same chapter, I would say, okay. For me, it's kind of like all or nothing when it comes to opioids and back pain. If you are having some sort of red flag symptoms in the ED, where like true emergency could be going on, and like you can't, you literally cannot walk despite all my coaching and cheerleading and and pom poms and and, and uh, confetti cannons, and I'm not reassured that I've ruled out an emergent reason for your severe back pain. I'm going to treat your pain very aggressively, and and, and that's where I am I'm going to pull out some sort of maybe parenteral or PO or opioids like you're saying, and then I'm going to re-examine you after an appropriate interval, and if we still are waving a red flag about our back pain, then I'm going to image you aggressively, I'm going to consult liberally to probably neurosurgery, okay? However... If you're not having any red flags about your back pain, and and even if you're in a lot of pain in my ED, frankly, it's time for some instructions on multimodal (coughs) non-opioid analgesia. And my favorite medicine that starts with a D, that's a discharge. Okay, you're out of here. What else is out there for multimodal back pain treatment? 4% lidocaine patches are about $10 a box over the counter, probably 15 with inflation. Now, TENS units... These electrostimulation units are also available for purchase over-the-counter, usually for less than the typical urgent care copay. We know about these modalities. It's important. And we let our patients know as well.
1: Yeah. So I'm not trying to ignore the evidence about the opio- opioids here. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, just once in a while, I, I read the situation. And certainly, sure. we're going to try to make the right diagnosis here. And honestly, if there's a patient like you just described that isn't doing well, that's like a great case. I say, hey, you know, i go to one of my physicians and say, this is a case that I want to present to you. Is there something else that I might be missing? You know, and that actually is a good example of it's like the physician will go into the room and the patient will be like, well, yeah, I've been having fevers. And actually, like I threw up and um, my urine, it's bloody. And I'm like, I asked you every single one of those questions. I don't get it. <laughs> that's the worst. Anyway, but, dude, I didn't mean to get all back painy uh, on you, but here we go. I'm happy um, we did. Yeah. yeah. It was good. I want to move on to another topic which could go in a lot of directions, even for uh, the acute treatment for pain um, and other things. Like I said, doing things to make you not care anymore. And I want to talk about marijuana. So is medical marijuana the solution to the opioid pain crisis? This is the hot topic on many medical websites. The answer is maybe. That's the short answer. And there are, as I said, a ton of variables when it comes to using weed for pain. Now, you can call it cannabis products. You can call it marijuana. You can call it weed. You can call it, a, uh, uh, you know, whatever. The river. The river.
0: Doopy. Uh, the devil's well, lettuce.
1: Already. So most of the time, people just get high to forget, right? And there is no doubt that weed helps people zone out. And forget about the pain and everything else. Really, everything. However, there are some dangers of smoking it. There are some dangers of doing too much. And of course, knowing what it might be mixed with, you know, a long time ago, back in uh, D.C. and Philadelphia in the early 2000s, you should be afraid of smoking weed because it was frequently laced with PCP, which was a huge problem in the ER around that time. Uh, but, you know, I, I was frankly scared of it in college. I did not want to do it because so many of my friends got high with the PCP, and it was it looked very dangerous to me. But now with all the dispensaries in California and 38 other states, it's really heavily regulated, so you pretty much know you're getting weed. Like, this is what you're getting. Um That's not to say that it's safer, but it's just something to be said. Uh, So, and Mike, um, as you know, I worked on the marijuana board for uh, several years in Vermont. I learned a lot. It was a great gig. I not only learned about the substance, studied it like pretty hardcore. I learned that, of course, all kinds of people try it for all different types of things, no matter who they are. And so that judgment level of its usage should be super low. Because usually if people are going to this, people that wouldn't normally use this, they're pretty desperate. And um, it works for some, for some things. Fun fact, two major strains of marijuana, sativa and indica, if you didn't know. And some have said, that, oh, Indicut has less of a head high, gives you this body high. Not so true. Um, It actually depends specifically sort of on that strain. Um, There's all these really great names, which we could spend lots of times talking about, (laughs) like Purple, OG, Kush, Pink, Lemonade, Watermelon Splash, uh, Freaky Deaky, whatever. All these different things. I just made up some names there, who knows. But um, what I'm trying to tell you is that if a a patient um, wants to talk to you about this, don't brush them off. I was read an interesting article that says we aren't talking to patients enough about their marijuana use, and it's true. Uh, both the strains, either indica or sativa, can cause negative side effects, especially those with PTSD and anxiety. So in fact, many studies show that marijuana in general can be harmful for those with underlying mental health issues. Some of these patients think that marijuana or, or medical cannabis is helping them. But in reality, it's just sort of pausing their symptoms temporarily. Mm. And then they're quickly brought back to reality once they're high, whether it's a head or a body high or both, um, is over. And then they can be more panicky. Got a lot of ease today. So be careful when you just say, oh, yeah, go out and try some weed. Because what worked for one person may not work for another. But Mike, also brings me to one last thing here. Is that I read in uh, that medical cannabis – can be an important alternative to opioids for pain management. So new research is suggesting this large survey, patients with a variety of ailments, including pain and mental health problems, reported less pain and better functioning after the use of medical cannabis. And they were able to cut back or even stop their opioid use. And that study was published online back in September of last year in substance use and misuse. So we'll put a link for that.
0: Yeah, you showed me this study. Uh, so the researchers had about 2,200 medical cannabis users in Florida complete a 66-item cross-sectional survey. I think you'd have to be on marijuana to do 66-item cross-sectional survey uh, that included demographic, health, and medication usage items along with health functioning before and after starting medical cannabis. Most users were between 20 and 70 years old. That's kind of a broad range: 54% were women, about half were married, 47% were employed, and most were white. Okay, so a, a pretty broad swath of humanity right there. The combination of pain plus mental health issues was the most common problem reported by medical cannabis users at about 48% followed by just mental health issues at uh, 29%, uh, kind of right there behind it, and then just pain, 9%, and then other non-pain cancer mental health uh, issues kind of trailing far yeah, just behind.
1: whatever stuff. Like, I'm right, just doing it for, like, uh, I don't My like glaucoma. the way. the I don't like the sun shines on me today. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I wanted to just sort of highlight who was doing this study because – What's interesting to me, as I as I said earlier, is that anybody, all kinds of people, uh, are doing this. Back in the day, you know, if you were smoking weed and uh, hanging out in the back alley, that's you know basically what you were doing. You weren't working, you weren't doing anything. You were weren't much of a nobody. You were just a stoner. But that's that's not who's using marijuana today. And so, you know, you can take a look at this study and the numbers of who they looked at and what they said specifically, a lot of subjective stuff, of course. Um, But I'm gonna note that other studies showed that those using cannabis products often mixed it with other drugs. So polypharmacy with marijuana is real, right? That commercial that marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, so ask patients what they're doing you know, how they're doing it, when they're doing it, and then help patients navigate through the potential harms, identify those who are at higher risk for side effects. Of course, those who are smoking it, like our COPD patient, asthma patients, ACS patients, um, severe mental illness, This it's not going to be necessarily better for them to do. Uh, one study found that cannabis by adults 65 years and older in the United States jumped sevenfold in the past decade In states like California, where I am, this really uh, stark increase has resulted in 1,808% jump in the rate of cannabis-related visits by seniors to the emergency room. Now, I'm going to tell you, a very, very nice, friendly senior citizen that lives on my street asked me to take her to the ER after eating some brownies a couple weeks ago. So take a look at this other study that was published in January in the Journal of American Geriatric Society. (laughs)
0: Well, this has been a very high-level discussion. I really appreciate this. As cannabis grows in popularity, clinicians need to inform patients about the potential harms and benefits, to be sure, and we're not going to know about those harms and benefits until we dip our toes into the literature. So it's really important. Uh, One of those potential harms, though, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Okay, I talk a little bit about those treatment strategies in my upper abdominal pain talk in the original emergency medicine boot camp, and you can get a preview of that if you go to our Center for Medical Education YouTube page, that's at ccmelive.org. I'm sure Martha and I both have some recordings there. That's where you can also get our uh, video versions of this podcast, by the way.
1: Yeah, so I'm just thinking about some of those patients that come in and they're like freaking out about whatever, They're I have chest pain, I can't breathe, I'm short of breath, I have back pain. I'm like, okay, all right. I give them a couple minutes, just remember for a second where they are, and then they just usually turn to me and go, I'm just really high. I'm like, have a seat. I'll be right with you. <laughs> no, but I mean, of course, we don't discount their their complaints. They get the EKG. We take a look at them. We evaluate them, all those things. So anyway, let's move on to segment two. That's the dry scan where we're going to penetrate a little deeper into two other topics.
0: All right. The American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP, has produced a host of clinical guidelines developed on the basis of both evidence and expert opinion that can assist, but ultimately not replace, our medical decision-making in the emergency and urgent care medicine. Their policy on appendicitis was getting a little uh, long in the tooth, and it was updated this year. The update asks three specific clinical questions for both PD and adult patients, and we'll go over them right now. Number one, what is the utility of clinical prediction rules? You know, we've heard of all the, you know, for PE, there's like Wells and PERC and there's other stuff. So in, in Pete's patients, there are a couple, um, the Alvarado, the PAS score, stuff like that. Um, these are useful, in ASAP's opinion, to risk stratify patients as far as how high or low risk they are for having an APE, but not to completely rule out the need for advanced imaging. There's no one you can just say, nope, no imaging required. You know, appendicitis is such a a moving target. And so all you can kind of say is, right now, are you low or high risk? In adults, however, ASAP recommends against these prediction rules altogether to determine who needs imaging. Okay, question number two, how does ultrasound stack up against CT and MRI? In adults and kids, if the read is clearly positive with a dilated appendix asap feels this is just as good diagnostically as a ct or mri number three if you've ordered the ct of the abdomen and pelvis for a suspected appy should you add contrast like in a lot of shops that i've worked at if someone is very skinny or very young will will add in some oral contrast asap's position and adults and kids use, use IV contrast if not contraindicated. So IV, yes, if not contraindicated, but ASAP states, oral or rectal contrast <laughs> does not help in diagnosis. Further, adults, you could also do a non-contrast study without losing much in terms of sensitivity. Well, there's just a ton to unpack in those brief questions and answers. First, These were all level B and C recommendations, as Ken Milne would have asked us here, like how high is the level of evidence about these things? None of these were level A recommendations. Second, it's important to understand the progression of appendicitis. Someone at hour one can look totally different at hour 10. Acute abdominal pain patients and parents of those patients, if applicable, need to know that it's critically important they come back in. If they're feeling worse in the next 8 to 12 hours, I definitely tell them that, and I write that in their discharge paperwork. So It's not clear what I told them, or it's, it's not unclear what I told them later on. Third, if an ultrasound is unclear in a pediatric patient, consider serial exams, serial ultrasounds, even just calling the surgeon at that point and saying, you know, look, clinically it looks like a nappy, but ultrasound is kind of unclear in this pediatric patient. Maybe even admit them so the surgeon can see them themselves, especially if they're more ill or have barriers to returning. One ultrasound in a clinically concerning patient is not enough to clear someone. Lastly, it's nice to hear all that talk about the contrast, especially with how long oral contrast can delay the definitive study, as well as with the recent contrast orders we've had. Um, we can always have that in the future, so it's nice to have a position from ASEP saying, hey, look, if we all of a sudden go zero on our contrast again, go ahead and get the non-con, and we're probably not using a whole lot in terms of sensitivity here.
1: Yeah. And it never hurts to spend some time with your radiologist. I say that every single show. I just really feel that it's important that we we keep a good relationship with them and know who we're working with because they're some of the smartest doctors out there. I'm always impressed. Um, Two other things I wanted to talk about that are not often Talked about in regards to appendicitis uh, are people on antiplatelets or antithrombotic therapy, mm. which can often be complicated. And then I want to comment a little bit on the best types of pain control in these patients in the ER. Uh, these recs come from up to date and some studies there. So first, patients on antiplatelet or antithrombotic therapy. Uh, so an appendectomy is commonly perform, performed urgently, as we know, right? So we get this done quickly, although it's generally considered a low bleeding risk procedures by our surgical teams, right? At least that's what their goal is, right? And the decision to interrupt anticoagulation also depends on the patient's thrombotic risk, which we have to think about. And as ER clinicians, we need to get on this early. And if the risk of interrupting anticoagulation is considered too high, then we might even consider those non-operative managements mm. that we can offer. Uh, so up to date talks at length about that. I defer to the surgeon on this one after getting a good history um, of the antiplatelet or anti thrombotic therapy. What's it for? What do you do? Don't call the surgeon and be like they're on, you know, this drug. <laughs> okay. Well, how long? For what? Why? Like, be prepared to answer some questions, right? Yeah. So it's reasonable. You know, to temporarily interrupt anticoagulation, we do this for other things, not just appendicitis, but the decision to proceed with the appendectomy really again depends on the dr- the type of drug, why they're on it, their risk stratification, um and why the, you know, the belly needs to be operated on to begin with, right? So just recapping that potentially uh, non-operative treatments might be used.
0: You're going to hear me breathe a sigh of relief when I hear a patient's, oh, placed on blood thinners, and then I go ask the patient, and they go, oh, yeah, I am on aspirin or clopidogrel, a.k.a. Plavix. So usually those are kind of reassuring ones. Short answer, pre-hospital use of aspirin or clopidogrel should not preclude or delay uh, laparoscopic api. In a retrospective case control study of patients undergoing a LAPAPI, those who were taking those drugs, either one or both, did not have more blood loss or transfusion requirements that matched against controlled patients in the study. Neither were there any sort of difference in complications, length of hospital stay, readmission, or mortality between the two groups. So those ones are kind of low-risk, aspirin, clopidogrel.
1: Right, so not no risk, but very low risk. Like yeah, I'm not wow. like woohoo, like it's aspirin, you know. Like <laughs> I'm just like, oh, okay, it's cool. So direct oral anticoagulants, patients on one of those are, uh, oh, you know, our Pradaxa, our Xarelto, our Eliquis, or Pixaban. Uh, we should wait for 24 hours for the or the creatinine clearance to be greater than 50 to 48 hours. Um, if the creatinine clearance is less than 50 from the last dose before undergoing that appendectomy. So the evidence for, uh, from the non-operative management trials here suggests that the rate of perforation is not higher as long as they are observed and receive antibiotics. So oh. a really good discussion with the surgeons on this one is crucial. I say, God, admit, 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 and get the patient to the floor where medicine and surgery can solve this debate without you.
0: <laughs> right exactly i hate it when mommy and daddy are fighting right like you guys just talk it out and i'll see my next patient over here okay right. well how about warfarin okay patients on warfarin should receive vitamin k as we know that's kind of the the uh, antidote so to speak to warfarin two and a half to five milligrams oral or iv in about one or two days that warfarin is going to be uh, reversed the appy can then proceed once the inr is normalized
1: yeah, so don't worry about restarting patients on their medications. By the way, unless you do crossover work as a hospitalist, and that's my opinion on that.
0: All right. Well, we've already talked a bit about pain control today in like other settings. What are your thoughts on pain control with uh, an appy? You said that was going to be coming here too.
1: You know, I was just thinking to myself, this whole podcast revolves around pain treatment. I found I don't know what I was what I was on on this one, but I was You're like on a little pain. pain
0: kick. I get it. Yeah, no problem. Painy.
1: Let's get it done. So. The key here is to get patients out of pain and relieve their anxiety, especially if surgery is going to be imminent, right? So there's no reason not to treat their pain and to do it fast. I've had an appendicitis and it's very painful. It's Mm. also very nauseating, so don't forget that combo. The worst, pain and nausea, so don't be a jerk, right? So check on those patients, make sure they're doing okay. Also remember, the patients who have had um, an appendicitis and They've had their surgery. Those surgeons want you up and walking around that same day. I hated that I had to do that, but I did. (laughs) Uh, Many go home the next day, some same day, depending on what time it was done. So belly surgery, even laparoscopic, super painful. Um, And studies show that the better we treat their pain early in these cases, the better the patients do long term. Uh, They need to avoid complications, right? We don't want them to get infection. We don't want them to get pneumonias. We don't want them to decondition. And as Rick Bucata always reminds us is that people over 25 can decondition in just 72 hours. And I know this also because if I miss the gym for three days, it's all over for me. (laughs) Literally, it's over. Anyway, so when it comes to pain control treatments, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, they have a really good role in treating pain. Put them together. And giving low-dose morphine, okay? The low-dose morphine is great because it allows you to do that stepwise approach and you don't always need to jump to like two milligrams of IVH, a lot of this patient's having surgery. Just, just give them a little bit, take the edge off and get them to where they're comfortable. And don't forget to weight-base them. Weight-base your drugs, always. Kids and adults, in my opinion, for pain.
0: So when you say low-dose morphine, like what do you mean by that, just so I'm clear?
1: Oh, yeah. So like two or four milligrams to start. If they're, you know, a, a relatively larger person, I might start with six or eight.
0: But well, yeah, all, exactly. Okay.
1: I, I mean, you really, again, do some weight based calculations, consider if they've had uh, opioid use in the past, and, and then give them a single dose of two or four and see if they have any effect within the first 15 minutes. Okay. And that'll well, give you your answer.
0: See, it's funny, right? Like, because, you know, here, like, when we're talking about, like, a appendicitis or colitis, like, I kind of, you know, go beyond, you know, like, but uh, I, I'm always ready to get the hairy eyeball, right? It, it, you know, the common practice in your ER is usually, like, in most places, the common practice is give a vial of morphine when someone needs morphine. Like, what do I mean? Like, like usually, your morphine comes in a vial of, like, four or five milligrams, and so, like the staff has trained itself to, like, when someone orders a weird amount, it's like, well, can I just give four milligrams? Because that's the what the vial is. And, and usually someone goes like, oh, well, yeah, I guess you can just do that. But yeah, it's easy to crack open just one vial and give the whole thing. But like you said, the normal weight-based dosing of morphine starts at 0.1 milligrams per kilo. So unless your patient weighs between like 88 and 110 pounds, you're probably underdosing them by just getting four or five milligrams of morphine.
1: Well, Mike, I got to interrupt you. Just remember, I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner most of the time. And when I'm thinking about patients, I'm thinking about them being small. So you're you're correct. Or Of course. Of course. Yes. Continue on.
0: See, for me, like if you're like 88 to 110 pounds, I'm wondering if you're like an amputee or something. It's like, are you missing? Like most people are above that. in in my practice you know well you know consider giving up to like 10 milligrams of morphine you know around the same time period in the appropriate patient in terms of weight or age or previous opioid tolerance if you don't feel comfortable going up to that level then try giving them a little more than just one vial you know you know six or even eight and then check them check them in 15 minutes and if they're still in a lot of pain then give an appropriate additional dose. Cause you know, really, you know, as they say, you titrate to either pain relief or um, decreased, Respiratory drive; those are kind of the two yeah. ends of like that's where you stop giving morphine <laughs> until you know? they stop
1: breathing. Right, <laughs> yeah, now. that's
0: that's when you know you've given too much, right? But okay. you, know, you can keep there, There's no real, true max dose of morphine. Um, we, we will list in the show notes an article from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine with some more like precise details on how to strategize your morphine dosing and other opioids too, because it's 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 obviously not something you want to just kind of screw around with. You want to have some sort of a plan. And this in this article is a really good plan, so refer back to that at our website. That is toview.fireside.fm.
1: So I want to talk about something else in regards to pain control, and it's a very, very interesting study and incredibly experimental. In fact, the authors themselves put that we realize this is a very experimental study here. <laughs> um, and this is a study about praying pain away and that it may be of value. Right, so I mean, quite frankly, when all else fails in all aspects of my life, I do. You know, this isn't a religious show, but there is something to be said about prayer and chanting and meditation and a spiritual connection. We know this, and um, I, I teach it in nursing school. I teach it to my nurse practitioners and and physicians as well. It's very important to have that spiritual aspect of your care. And if you're in pain, there are some things that are interesting here about. Prayer. So, this was a study actually in PubMed's NIH library that looked at chanting Islamic prayer and they aimed to show that it's pronounced Dicker, it's pronounced D H I K R. Excuse me, it's spelled that way, um, D H I K R, and prayer together reduced pain for patients undergoing appendectomy. So, yeah, you heard me right. The prayer and the study had sh- had shown that it improved the patient's vital signs. And this could be a reflection of a decreased level of pain. So the study aimed to assess this effect of the dicker and the prayer on pain, pulse rate, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation. And, again, they wrote it is a quasi-experimental design here. They know that there were a lot of interesting methods that they put into place, and essentially, they looked at a small number of people, just 44 people, and their results showed that they had a significant um, interaction, uh, the prayer and the chanting, to decrease the pain, the pulse rate, the respiratory rate, and improve their oxygen saturation um, within one hour. So the conclusion here, the combination of these two things may actually help decrease pain and improve vital signs. It helped the nurses implement uh, this as a procedure. You know, if you're Catholic, maybe it's doing the rosary, you know, whatever it is for essential uh, cultural and spiritual care for our appendectomy patients or any surgical patient. Why not? I mean, this is what happens when you go down the rabbit hole of reading evidence-based uh, um, articles and experimental studies. And yeah, like I said, my desk is getting a major clean out here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you say when all else fell ad pair. I say start there. <laughs> and then Shit. go go to everything else after that. Look, I'm totally on board with this. A, a lot of spiritual traditions, including my own, can involve repetitive, you know, either prayer or verbalizations like this dicker that we talk about here. If someone can somehow activate their parasympathetic nervous system and self-regulate that pain, that's awesome. Like that's just like that's like doing um like uh. Vagling somebody right someone's an svt yeah. and they're like okay just blow here or do this thing and just by accessing the the power of our own nervous system we can kind of treat a problem that's like wicked i just don't know yeah. how to order it in the emr that's the hard <laughs> part
1: yeah it's just like in epic you can order a banana give that patient a banana <laughs> give that patient some prayers please well, then
0: if you order the banana you gonna be Get click it. boxes to like Peeled? Unpeeled? Is it sliced? Is it Q2H bananas PRN? Or is it uh, what? Anyways. uh, Yeah. I like that Don't get me wrong. Well, it's time for our last segment that we call Oral Contrast, where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a particular topic.
1: Well, Mike, I'm sorry. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on this last segment. I really thought that was super cool. It's like, wow, can we really be holistic in the ER? I hope so. Anyway, the last topic we're going to jump into is some serious talk about colchicine. Colchicine. Oh, gosh, I just love that drug. I think this is an incredibly underrated drug with a lot of interesting uses, and people are often afraid to prescribe it, and I want to know why. I'd like to know why. So let's talk about it. I want us to open our minds and our Left big toe and our hearts to colchicine <laughs> here. Let's remind you of what the drug is and how it's used. Number one, I find reviewing the stuff in plain English for myself is great. It makes me a better clinician. Why? because not only can i impress my friends with my quote non medical jargon here they 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 like me to explain things in words they can understand but when patients ask me what does this do and why i can actually explain it really easily in some ways that patients get right so cultrseen this easy comes it's derived from a plant the autumn crocus so mm. crocus people often know what that is if not you can describe it it's a long green-leaved plant with beautiful flowers, and it's been used medicinally for centuries. It is native to Great Britain and Ireland, and it grows from a bulb, and it's really a fascinating and beautiful plant. Toxic to cats, though, Mike, FYI.
0: Well, I will make sure that Robert Theodore and Josephine Shark listen to this episode, okay? (laughs) Uh, Colchicine is one of the many non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs out there. I mean, because like, you know, aspirin is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It's just different than our textbook, the NSAIDs that we think about, like ibuprofen or, or naproxen. Colchicine inhibits white blood cell motility and degranulation by depolarization of microtubules. That's microtubules. Right. I, said, <laughs> I said microtubules. You did not think we'd be going back to cell biology today, did you? But here we are, okay? It also inhibits interleukins, which, as we know, are also an important part of an inflammatory reactions, mm-hmm. so those darn interleukins. Let's start with the old reliable uses. Colchicine is used to prevent or treat attacks of gout and the buildup of uric acid in the blood. doesn't cure gout but it will help prevent gout attacks and also treat acute attacks when they happen. It is not an ordinary pain reliever. It's not something you throw at somebody with, let's say musculoskeletal neck or back pain, but let's kind of explore it some more. It does do some other things beyond just gout. It's also been studied and used to reduce the risk of things like heart attack, wow, stroke, certain types of heart procedures and cardiovascular death in patients with atherosclerosis. for all you fans of familiar Mediterranean fever out there, you also know it's great to treat that. This very rare condition. Maybe we'll cover that in a future podcast, right after like vibrio and other stuff out there.
1: Yeah, I can just envision that conversation of like that one patient that you have with uh, familial Mediterranean fever, and and someone goes, "Gosh, I don't know how to treat that." I'd be like, "Oh, I know. It's with culture saint. Didn't you know yeah. that?" It's Duh. like, right? Duh. Right. So you have these wonderful arsenal of random information. Okay, colchicine, it can be used in two ways, all right? And I want people to really um, embrace this. Give it a hug, you know, look at it, Google it, you know, maybe grow a plant, whatever, it's not illegal. Don't smoke it or give it to a cat. But some people, okay, they actually take colchicine in regular amounts, like small amounts, months to years for the prevention of their gout, right? They're taking this already. Or other problems with inflammation. But we prescribe it right acutely for gout. And we might prescribe more of it really until they have diarrhea, right? Take this until you have diarrhea. <laughs> so during a short period of time, we'll do this in a couple of hours. We're going to increase that dose. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to increase the doses during an acute gout attack, even in a patient that's already taking a low dose. So Maybe the patient um, is like, I don't want to take any more pills. There's other ways to give it. it. comes in capsules, solutions, tablets. I always like to give a variety of how we give these medications. Kind of useful. Keep that in your arsenal. Um, so now that we've brushed up on the history of colchicine and how to use it, let's talk about some other uses for it besides gout, which I think are interesting. So the FDA recently approved this for the use in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, for the prevention uh, really, to help create uh, what happens is the in, the inflammatory response here in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is it's an immune mediated inflammatory disease at best here. So particularly um, in rheumatology, this can be useful. So I want you to consider um, patients that may be on this for other reasons besides gout. So a new pilot study suggests that aspirin can actually be discontinued the day after patients have PCI, and colchicine can be uh, implanted here instead, uh, and patients can take colchicine as an anti-inflammatory agent to reduce the risk of ischemic events. Uh, So I think that's really interesting. Um, And studies are also showing that dermatology is using this drug to treat those with psoriasis, And it has been used to treat patients in the gastroenterology world with IBS.
0: Probably something to do with those microtubules. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we usually reach for an NSAID prescription. In the risk situation, we diagnose them with pericarditis. But there's a ton of good evidence out there about the treatment of both acute and recurrent pericarditis with colchicine. The COPE and ICAP trials uh, were published back in 05 in 2013. They respectively suggest that colchicine reduced symptom severity and recurrence, as well as hospitalization. There was a 2020 review of pericarditis by the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. They suggest that colchicine be given in addition to NSAIDs, weight-based, of course, and potentially for up to three months. Be careful when myocarditis is suspected. The data is a little more mixed with the colchicine there. I mean, you're admitting that patient to the hospital anyways before you throw some uh, colchicine down the hatch, get cardiology on board first. Like every single medication we could give, there's always risks and benefits. Be careful in people with renal impairment, hepatic disease, GI disease, uh, bone marrow suppression, people on dialysis, just, but you know, I, we're definitely advocating, you know, take a second look at colchicine, while you're kind of new at prescribing it, also make sure you understand what the contraindications are and prescribe wisely.
1: Yeah, be careful of those patients that are on calcium channel blockers as well, just throwing that out there. Mm. Um, Yeah, so uh, one other thing I wanted to say is that there are patients that know what works best for them. And quite frankly, again, this is when I will give potentially a Percocet or two for an acute gout attack that is that, it's pain, it is painful. But one thing I really, really do enjoy is prednisone for patients. Um, Mm -hmm. They will come in and say, I need this amount of days of prednisone, and this will go away. So, of course, we can talk more about prednisone and the treatment of gout in the future. But I would really like next month for us to talk more about pericarditis and the treatment of that and myocarditis as well. But. You know, maybe this is the door that we've opened for you or a window that we've cracked to the culture scene world. And please send us your pictures and uh, selfies with the crocus, the autumn crocus, uh, (laughs) to the Two (laughs) View.
0: Yeah, it's our website, our email address, rather, is the twoviewcast at gmail.com. We would love to see you and your autumn crocus uh, blooms out there. Uh, I'm, I'm also a big fan of steroids in the right patient for gout. Um, we, we also have a link to the kind of American, uh, journal of rheumatology, their kind of gout review. We've put that on our website as well. That is of course at twoview.fireside.fm
1: All right. Here's our trivia question. And I love that it's about colchicine. So by the way, the proper spelling of colchicine, C-O-L-C-H-I. C I N E. Mike, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen people misspell this word. How do they do it? Just make up a bunch of letters and numbers, and that's how they do it.
0: All right. That's this like is- a, a <laughs> pro- propranolol. Is it like, pro- is it pro- propranolol? <laughs> Popanolol? Pro- yeah. How many are the R's best? Of propranolol the best
1: is seeing the misspelling of diarrhea and colchicine in the same sentence. So, <laughs> anyway. Okay. So, colchicine is derived from the autumn crocus plant. What is the mature-sounding nickname for this plant, and how did it get its name?
0: It's going to be a two-part answer for our two-part question. Email us that answer in addition to anyone you want to give a shout-out to, as well as any sort of feedback or comments about our episode or this format to 2 at gmail.com. That's number 2viewcast at gmail.com. Well, um, I think we're out of things to talk about in terms of pain control, uh, recreational drug use, uh, all the stuff, you know, prescription opioids. You've kind of ran the, the gauntlet here. So uh, more information about the Managing Pediatric Emergencies course, the original and advanced emergency medicine boot camps, the emergency medicine and acute care course, or any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That's www.ccme.org, www.ccme. Org.
1: So, lots of really fun and uh, cool things coming up this year, mm-hmm. and I really hope that you can join us for some of our programs. Please check out our website. Check out our podcast that we've done in the past, available on YouTube, and we have anywhere you listen to podcasts, they are available for you to peruse. We try to keep them evergreen for you as well. Um, if you want to come to our boot camp course in December. Come on down, check Come out on. ccme.org for more information.
0: Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. To the two of you, you can subscribe and rate us. Hey, go ahead and rate us on Apple Tunes, iTunes podcast, Apple Tunes. Is that a thing? Apple Tunes? Yeah, that's just like yes. a, that's like, a, like an apple teeny Apple Tunes. Apple Ooh. iTunes podcast, Google podcast, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency on your favorite podcatcher. It'll come right up, I promise you. Ratings help us climb the charts while other clinicians get some Two View goodness like you've been doing just recently. If you like YouTube, you want to see my Fetching Hawaiian shirt. My wife picked this out for me. Thanks, Monica. <laughs> a- and You know, you can watch the video version, go to uh, YouTube and search for Center for Medical Education, or just go to ccmelive.org. Don't forget our website where you can go next level. And any of these topics we talked about, you can look at all the different studies and, uh, you know, uh, practice reviews and clinical guidelines. That's uh, 2 FM, the number 2view.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
1: Well, that's it. Thank you for tuning in, friends and em. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks again for sharing your time with us today on the Two View. Have a great day and a great shift.
0: Microtubules.